a blessing it is to come together on the Lord's Day to gather, to partake of the Lord's Supper, and to indeed pray and sing and worship our God as we have done so already. We are blessed, as has been mentioned by our brother Alan, with a number of individuals that are visiting with us, and you are an encouragement to us. And we as members have it as our responsibility to welcome you and to share with you how grateful we are for your presence. We have those who have been sick and are now restored, or at least somewhat restored, enough to be with us and feeling a little bit better. And for that, we are grateful as well. Appreciate so very much, Brother Michael, picking out good songs uh, that go well together. And we are blessed with song leaders who routinely do that. And thinking about the idea of behold our God, every time I, I sing that song, I think about a giant curtain being opened and saying, behold, here he is. Take a look at him because he is indeed great. And it is because of the cross that we, that we yell out hallelujah for the cross. And the idea of praising our God, I noticed that in the second verse of that song that Michael led us in, we made reference to the fact that there are promises that our God has made to us that he will always keep. And that's a great segue into the topic of our study together today, which comes from a song from about 140 years ago that was written, Standing on the Promises of God. Now, this is not a song that's delving into the lyrics of that song that you are likely familiar with, but rather I want us to focus for a few moments on this idea of promises that God uh, has made for us and made to us. When I make a promise to you, I will do my very best to keep it. But because I am a human being and because sometimes things come up that change or circumstances arise that are beyond my control, I may not keep that promise. And I think we would be gracious enough to one another that if I promise to do something for you and then I, I don't do so, you would assume that something drastic has come up because, well, we are people that try to keep our word to one another. And so there are times where we will disappoint one another by failing to keep the appropriate promises that we make to one another. But that's not the case with our God. Behold our God, he keeps his promises. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. If you'd like to open your Bibles to the New Testament letter that Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, and you probably know where we're going, we could spend all of our time in 2 Peter chapter 3, but we're going to spend about five minutes there just at the outset of our study here in just a moment or so. I wanted to start with this concept, though, and that is to look at some numbers. And I think there's a lot that we learn from numbers, and I think that uh, there's a lot that we learn from the way in which words are used or concepts are introduced in Scripture. And as I began this particular sermon, I come back to the idea that our God and promises work together in tandem. That he is a God of promises, and when we think about promises made and promises kept, uh, we don't think about necessarily politicians. We don't think about uh, the investments in which we invest. We don't even think about maybe the people that are our closest to us because we are humans who make mistakes. We think about our God, and promises and God go together. Depending on the version of the Bible that you're reading from, I'm reading from the New King James Version together today. Uh, 
and invite you to open to whatever version you would like. But the concept of promise or promises or the word is used 125 times in the New King James Bible. And as good Bible students, if I gave you five minutes to really think about it, and really delve into your brains and think about what books in the Old and the New Testament would we find the word promise or promises used the most. You might guess Psalms just because of the number of Psalms that there are. That would be incorrect, but that would be a good guess. But you may find it interesting that going back to Brother Brian Bain's uh, study about a year and a half ago of the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, that the word promise or promises is used in the book of Deuteronomy more so than any other Old Testament book. And as you start thinking about it, you think, yep, based on what Brian taught us and based on more broadly what the Holy Spirit reminds us of, that this second reiteration of the law was designed to remind the people who were in this second or repeating generation of the need to be reminded of the importance of promises that God had made. And so that fits very nicely. What about the New Testament? We'll give bonus points to the people that get this right in your head uh, that are worth absolutely nothing this morning. The, the points, that is. And that is the book of Hebrews. And you would say, now nah, that makes sense as well because the book of Hebrews is written to a group of people who are being told, do not give up. There's a group of us that are studying online the book of Hebrews currently. And one of the things that we are uh, making mention of on a very routine basis is these are Christians who are thinking about throwing in the towel, giving up on their faith, going back to Judaism because it's just too difficult. Difficult. And because, like Brother Jason talked about today in our study of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8, there are true costs associated with being a child of God, especially in the first century, when there, those, those uh, actions could cost you your life or at the very least cost you your fortune. Which brings us then to the text that I want us to talk about here in 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to read 2 Peter chapter 3, the first nine verses here in just a moment. The point that I would like to make at the outset of this reading is, the, is that for the third time, we make promises in ways that are different than God makes promises. We have full faith that we will do our very best to keep that promise, but something could come up. Nothing ever comes up with God. Never an inconvenience, never a change of plans, never a, I forgot about that or I can't pay the debt. God keeps his promises. Which brings us then to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want to read verses 1 through 9. We're going to read these verses, and then I want us to make two or three really quick observations uh, as if we were doing a true expository sermon just on these nine verses. But rather than spending 30 minutes on it, we'll spend about three to five minutes on it. And then I want us to go a little bit more in a different direction with five promises or five op, uh, observations about promises of God. He says, Beloved, in this final chapter, I now write to you in this second epistle in which... I both stir up your minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and they are going to say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, and by which the world that when it existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day. And then verse 9, the verse that is always going to come to mind when we think about God's promises. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning the promises that he made or concerning his promise, as some would count slowness or slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us, not one that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so if I were going to build an outline for this particular text, as it often does, Peter provides great text. Those of you that, that preach on, on occasion. Uh, Peter is an incredible book for outlining sermons. Uh, that's the case with lots of New Testament books, but Peter seems to be really uh, adept at that. So what are the things that I would come away with? One of those is that men have and will always question God's promises. The New American Standard uses the word mockers here. It's the idea of mocking God. You made a promise. And think about this. 2,000 years ago, in the generation or second or third generation removed from Jesus, people were saying, he promised he was going to come back. It's been 30 years. Where is he? Little did they know that 2,000 years later, we'd be saying, well, we're still waiting on him as well. But we trust God's promises. Jesus will return. The earth and the works within it will be burned up as discussed in the subsequent verses. This world will come to an end. We will stand before judgment. We believe that. I'm confident that if we were all hooked up to a lie detector machine, that we would all be able to pass it and say, I believe that Jesus is going to return again. I believe that the world's going to come to an end. I believe there is a judgment, and I believe in a heaven and a hell. I believe that, by and large, uh, that we would all pass that polygraph. If you can't, we want to talk to you to try to convince you to get to a place where you do believe that because your soul depends on it. Secondly, God's timing is not our own. We've got to understand that both in, in an eternal sense, but also in a more temporal sense. Eternal in the sense that there's going to be a time when this world will come to an end, and it may be today, it may be a hundred years from now, it may be a thousand years from now. I don't know. The Bible tells us that the Father knows, and that's all that matters to us. But in a temporal sense, we sing sometimes, number 361, in his time, in his time. He makes all things beautiful in his time. And then number three, the thing that I would point out in a, in a lengthier sermon on this particular text is that the Lord can be counted on for sure. Verse 9 is key. And it's a verse that many of you have memorized, or at the very least, the moment that someone starts saying the Lord is not slack concerning his, oh yes, he's talking about promises that God has made. So I want to look at five different things that we can appreciate about our God. Behold our God and behold the promises that he has made. One of those goes back to now the fourth time that we have made mention of this, and that is God can be counted on always. And to 
to illustrate this, I, I came across a psalm that I had not really paid a lot of attention to before. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 77. And we're just going to read a couple of verses of Psalm 77. It's 20 verses long. It would take you all of about two minutes to read it. And I encourage you to do so maybe sometime this week. But he says in verse 1, he says, I cried out to my God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. What a beautiful sentiment. And that's not just a nice thought. That is real. When you cry out to God, he says, I'm here. I'm ready to listen. You know, we have the best of intentions when it comes to the promises that we try to make and that we try to keep. And we also have the best of intentions when it comes to the way that we listen to one another. If you come to me and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something, uh, and it's going to take 10 or 15 minutes to have this conversation, that's fine. But I might. I'm, I'm, I'm a human being. And the other thing, not, not to be too critical of those of us who are male, but I might drift a little bit. I might not listen completely. Sometimes we say to our wives, you want us to listen or do you want us to listen? Because there's a difference in those things. Are you talking to me? No, I was talking to the imaginary person in the house with me right now. But God says, I'm here to listen to you. And I will listen to you. And there's nothing that you could do to, to divert my attention away from what you have to say. God would say. So he always gives his ear. I want us to drop down. We're not going to read all of these verses, but drop down to verse 7. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he, and will he be favorable no more? And then notice verse 8. Has his mercy ceased forever? And has his promise failed forevermore? Literally, that's the idea from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. Is that the way God's promises are that they have failed? It's a seemingly what I would call rhetorical question that begs an emphatic no. God's promises never fail. His love never fails. His promise never fails. And so one of the reasons why he is indeed great is your way, O God, verse 13, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Behold, our God. Hallelujah for the cross. I will praise the Lord always. And when we studied just six or seven weeks ago in Paul's second recorded letter to the church at Corinth, we see that he sought to seek a God that could truly be counted on and be uh, that you can be assured of. And so there in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, in verse 15, he says, here is the confidence, not doubt, here's the confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. And Paul says, I want to be like God. Remember, he would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says, for all the promises, verse 20, dropping down to the second part of the paragraph, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. If you want to underline in your Bibles that phrase, verse 20, all the promises of God in him are yes. That's something that we can count on. No doubt about when it comes to God, we can appreciate the promises that he has made as being that which you can take to the bank.
Speaking of God and speaking of promises, I want us to secondly observe that promises that God has made go back to the beginning. There's no beginning of God. He's eternal. I can't explain that to you, but he's eternal and that he has no beginning and no end. But the beginning of our introduction to God is that we go back and we see that God made promises from the beginning. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, you find the first promise that God ever made. Remember what that was? This is a a part of the text that is sometimes difficult to read, especially as you get into chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. But this is where God says, you can do whatever you want in terms of eating from the garden. It's yours. But that one tree that is in the midst of the garden... Don't eat of that. In the day that you do, you will certainly or you will surely die. That's a promise. What happened? Well, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, spoiler alert, they disobeyed God. And they lost their lives. Not that day, but years later, they physically lost their lives. And in a more important way, we learn of a spiritual death where we need a Christ, a Savior, to save us from our sins. We could spend all of our time talking about Abraham, who is the great father, the great promises uh, that are associated with him. But I want to go back and read just a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 12, and then you can read Genesis 15 and 17 on your own. Those three chapters, by the way, go together, even though they're separated by chapters in between them. But Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1 reads the following. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And then here comes the promises. I will, God says, make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These are the four instances where he says, I will, lending itself to the three big promises that God has made to Abraham. If you turn over to the 105th Psalm and verse 42, it says, he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. You may even have a footnote in your Bible or a marginal note that connects those two passages together because the lengthy 105th Psalm fits nicely, verse 42, with Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17. I want to look at three New Testament passages that really kind of uh, hit it a home run, it seems to me, when talking about the fact that God and promises go together from the beginning. And we're going to look at these in the order in which they transpire. The first is in Romans, the second is in Galatians, and the third is, you guessed it, in the book of Hebrews. And you say those three books have a lot in common. You're right. They do have a lot in common because they are written uh, to a group of people who either A, are thinking about throwing in the towel, or B, are confused about what the Christianity that they are subscribing to is all about. So here in Romans chapter 4, A passage that Brother uh, Carey took us through a few months back. It says in verse 16, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Uh, I like the New King James there because it has the two Ps. He promises and he performs. And that's something that our, our God always does. He promises and then he does it. Then in verse 22, therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. We could spend a, a good 20 minutes delving into those verses, but we've recently studied uh, the epistle to the Romans. And so we'll leave that there and just kind of put that to the side with a big semicolon before we move on to our next text, which is in Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. And, or the churches of Galatia, where he writes to these early Christians, and he says in chapter 3, in verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3, For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And then verse 29, the end of this paragraph, and the end of chapter 3. If you are Christ, he says, then you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. You and I go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. But we may not be Jewish. We may not be able to trace our ancestors back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the, quote, good Jews did in Old Testament times and even in the early New Testament times. But we are recipients of the promise that God made because we are indeed not physical Israel, but as outlined in other passages, spiritual Israel. Which then brings us to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Where there the writer, whoever he was, uh, you can speculate on that in your own time. He says, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. By the way, the words diligence, assurance, and hope are key words in that particular passage. They're all words of certainty or words of promise. Verse 12, that you do not become sluggish or lazy but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And he goes on in the next few verses here. He says, when God made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 15 and 17, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And he says, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed by an oath, that by these two things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. 
This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence before the veil. This is the promise that we can depend on. It is an anchor. Recently, I was in a study with a group of Christians, and the analogy was used with the idea of a boat that was drifting. And it happens slowly, as Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4 seems to suggest. But instead, what we need is an anchor that we drop and say, I don't want to drift any further. And here in Hebrews chapter 6, the hope we have as an anchor is the promise that God has made for us. Which brings us then to a third observation. And that is a subject that I'm thinking about spending some time on a little bit later this year or perhaps even into 2024, Lord willing. And that is there is mystery concerning the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit uh, and the mystery associated with it doesn't mean that we can't understand it to what I would call a sufficient satisfactory degree or that we shouldn't study it accordingly. Sometimes we get to certain books of the Bible, certain passages or certain concepts. And we say, not quite sure what to do with this, so I just won't study it. And we want to make sure that we avoid going down that road. And so we may delve into a study of the Holy Spirit at some point in the future. But I want to look at just uh, uh, three or four passages. And I want to start in Luke's first volume and then look at, look at Luke's second volume. Because you recall that Luke is the author of both the Gospel according to Luke, all 24 chapters, as well as the 28 chapters in the book of Acts that we are familiar with. So look, if you would, at Luke. Luke chapter 24, and in the very final words that are being associated here with the gospel of Luke, he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. We know from passages like John 14 and 16 that we'll take a quick look at here in just a moment that the earliest followers of Jesus were, shall we say, uh, unsettled by, uh, unsure of, and concerned about the departure of Jesus. He was this great security to them. And as a good friend, they didn't want him to leave. And he says, but I'm going to leave, and the Father is going to send a helper, someone who's going to be there to provide you with assistance. Well, sure enough, if you turn over to the book of Acts, which is the next book after the book of John, if you turn it over to the book of Acts chapter 1, in verse 4 it says, Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Well, there it is. He's going directly back to what he had written in his first volume in Luke 24. Now drop down to chapter 2. Now chapter 2 is probably the, uh, the most quoted chapter in all of the book of Acts. It's the one that we are the most familiar with. It is, as one author called it, the hub of the Bible. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house in which they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages or other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And then in verse 33, we see yet another reference to this, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. What is it that they're seeing and hearing? They are seeing the evidence of the Holy Spirit coming upon these men who now have, among other things, an ability to speak languages in which they have no training. This is a fulfillment of Luke 24 and, more broadly, of John chapters 14, 15, and 16. We won't take the time to read those particular passages, but you see here where Jesus says, It is good that I'm going to leave because I'm going to send the comforter or the helper to be there with you. Simply put, without the Holy Spirit, you and I are left without the word and ultimately without the hope that keeps us going because the Holy Spirit provides us with the promise. No wonder why it's called the promise of the Father because it promises us great things and provides us with great comfort. Let me suggest to you fourthly in our list of five things that there are real results of God's promises. And I know that from passages like 2 Peter and 2 Corinthians, we could make a long list, but I was jotting down over the last couple of weeks a list, and I, I came up with seven, which was a good number to stop at. Not too short, not too long, right? But consider, if you would, all the benefits to following God. If I were to ask you, what are the benefits of serving God? And we would all have different answers, but they would all be correct, most likely. Some would approach it from the idea of a reunion with the saints, a reunion with our Father, an ability to see Jesus, the comfort that comes in this life. Let me suggest to you seven things very quickly. And I want to start in 2 Peter, and then we're going to transition to 2 Corinthians. So open, if you would, back to 2 Peter chapter 1. And Peter writes about this subject at great length. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, notice what he says. He says, his divine power, God's divine power, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, the knowledge of him who called us by the glory and virtue. Everything that matters to life and godliness, God has provided. We will not be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, you know what? You told me 95% of what I needed to do, but that other 5% meant that I didn't know what was necessary. God says, not true. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, everything that pertains to life and godliness has been provided to you. That's a promise that God made. Similarly, in verse 4, by which, having been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We are partakers of God's nature. There's a thought just to dwell on for just a few seconds. What does that mean? I don't know that I understand exactly all that means, but I have an idea of where that goes. We are partakers of, of, of God's divine nature. That's special. Thirdly, in that same text, it says we are delivered from corruption in the world. And the world is filled with all sorts of corruption and all sorts of problems and all sorts of ugliness. And the fact is, is God says, I'm going to deliver you from that. That's the idea of salvation that you and I enjoy. 
Now I'll turn uh, back a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where we were reading last week, and we'll close out this particular slide with this list of additional four things that come as a result of God's promises. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 17, go back to verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, walk among them, I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, verse 17, come out from among them and be separate from them. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You should be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. So number four, God will dwell and walk in us. Interesting that in verse or that in, in part two, he says that we are partakers of God's divine nature, and now we are saying that God is going to dwell or tabernacle in us, and He's going to walk in us. Number five, we are going to be God's people. I have a friend who posts on social media quite frequently that on the Lord's Day, we are his people. And we are here to give him what he deserves, what he righteously deserves. We are the people of God. God, according to verse 18, will be our parent. You know, we all are blessed with parents. Sometimes they make good decisions. Sometimes they have their regrets going back to the point that I made a few weeks back. But nobody has perfect parents. And nobody, him or herself, is a perfect parent. As much as we might try to be perfect and to do the things that would be best for our children. But God is a perfect parent. He's a perfect father who never made a mistake and who will never make a mistake and will never have regrets. And then verse 1, therefore, having these promises, so there's the word again, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You and I enjoy perfect complete holiness in God's sight. Those are the promises that you and I benefit from. And I know that you could go and explore uh, dozens of other texts in the New Testament and the Old Testament to find where there are more promises of our God and results of his promises. But let me share with you in closing number five what I would call God's ultimate promise. The word ultimate is a, is a, is a neat word. It's the idea of that which is final or that which matters the most or that which is the biggest or that which is lasting. And truly when it comes to a real lasting promise of our God, it is one thing that matters more than anything else. I want to look at three passages and then I'm going to look at two words. And we'll close our study together today. I want to start in 1 Timothy chapter 4, then go to Hebrews, and then end where we began this morning in 1 John chapter 2. So we start in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and here Paul is writing, and he says that, God, that bodily exercise profits a little. He's not saying that it's bad to bodily exercise. He's saying that more profitable is spiritual exercise. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of what? Life that now is and life that which is to come. 
godliness and exercising godliness and exercising to become stronger and more suited to what the Lord wants us to be will profit us with a promise that is both temporal and which is eternal. Then in Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 1, the writer there says, since a promise remains of what? Entering a rest. Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Rest is a beautiful word as well. There are some who are here this morning that I'm confident haven't rested in a long time. Uh, you've got so many different things happening in your life. That, yeah, you sleep a few hours, but you, you aren't rested. And you will never get real lasting rest in this life unless you truly turn things over to a God who provides that rest. Even then, you may have some restless nights, as many of you have had over the last few weeks, thinking about those that you care about and those that you are concerned about. But rest comes to those who have turned themselves over to our God. And then in 1 John chapter 2, the passage that we began with this morning that our brother Stephen read for us so ably, this is the promise that has been promised to us by him. And it's two words. You already know the last two words of verse 25. If not, memorize them. Memorize that 1 John 2, Hebrews 4, and 1 Timothy 4 are all telling us one thing. The greatest promise is eternal life. You know, there are salesmen who will try to sell you all kinds of things. But the best thing that you can buy and sell not, to borrow from Solomon's words from 3,000 years ago, is those things that are of an eternal component and eternal nature. That matters more than anything. That matters more than your physical health, your education, your financial health, your family's welfare is eternal life. That's what matters the most. And that's the promise that our God has made to us. We stand on those promises. Notice that we don't sit on those promises. We stand on them confidently in a sense of, I believe that God is real and that he is there for me. If you're not standing on the promises of God, you are listening, unfortunately, perhaps, uh, either to no one or you're listening to those in the world who have empty promises, who may have things that will help you in this life, but not the things and the thing that will ultimately help you in this life. And that's what we offer. Not that we are the ones who died, not that we are the ones who have the power to save, but God will give the increase to you. He will make it so that you are firmly footed in his promises, which never fail. He is not slack or slow concerning his promises, but he desires that you this morning repent. And if you need to make a change in your life and come home to the God of promises, we welcome the opportunity to help you this morning. If you're not a Christian, you need to become one before it's too late. You need to make that decision to be baptized, to have your sins washed away, remitted, removed. Remember no more. And God will add you to the church. And we, along with the angels in heaven, will rejoice. If we can help you in any way spiritually, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.